Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the ANWA Deterrence Center. Each week, we bring you leading nuclear deterrence experts for a lively discussion on current topics. Our host is Dr. Adam Lowther, Director of Strategic Deterrence Programs at the National Strategic Research Institute. The views of the host and the guests are their own. All right, and welcome into the latest episode of NucleCast. Of course, I'm excited to be here as your host, and I am Adam Lowther. And today we have a very special guest, Dr. John Harvey, who is the former Principal Deputy Assistant to the Secretary of Defense for Nuclear, Chemical, and Biological Defense Program. That's a, that's a big title. And the former Director of Policy, uh, Policy Planning Staff of the National Nuclear Security Administration, among the many jobs he's held over his long and distinguished career. And of course, I would also like to say that John has been a mentor to me over my career. And as I have sought advice from time to time, he's always been there to give it and to give aid and assistance when, when I've asked. So I am really pleased to have you here talk with us on NucleCast. So welcome into the show. Great to see you, Adam. So uh, I want to just, you know, you're one of the senior dons of the nuclear deterrence and nuclear enterprise world. And I wanted to just sort of start the show, if you could potentially give us some insight into what it is that you think makes a great career, because there's some young folks. I have a a PhD student, for example, who wants to go into this world. And, and much like you want, she's got a technical background, and but is interested in policy as well. And you've done all those things. So what kind of advice would you give young folks who are looking to move into the nuclear world and trying to figure out where they should start, where they should go, what they should do? What's your advice? Well, I think that's a great question. I haven't thought too much about it. But as uh, just to give you a little bit of a recap of my career, I started off in physics. I got my Ph.D. in physics at the University of Rochester. Uh, and then I went to Lawrence Livermore for almost 10 years, uh, 10, 11, 12 years. And I worked on a number of things at Lawrence Livermore. Uh, and particularly, uh, I had an opportunity to sort of get involved in the work I was doing on my PhD was experimental physics and much more, uh, much more uh, advancing the state of the knowledge of, of, of a research field. My work at Livermore was much more applied. And I got an opportunity to do a number of things at Livermore. And one of the first pieces of advice I would give to a young person going in is get your PhD, uh, particularly if you're in a technical field, get uh, some experience, some in-depth experience at a national lab or a company or a university, uh, and then think about uh, developing your policy uh, uh, cred. Uh, you need to do some writing, uh, 
I mean, uh, one of the things I was able to do at Livermore was work on projects having to do with nuclear weapons programs and at the same time write about those things. Uh, and once you've established your writing skills, and not only your writing skills, but your ability to think independently in, in the field, in the national security field you're pursuing, I think it's a good idea to, uh, uh, that will establish your creds. Uh, at some point in your career, you may want to move into a policy arena like I did, where I spent some time in Washington, D.C., uh, in two jobs in the Department of Defense, uh, both political appointees of a Democratic administration, and some time in the Department of Energy, as Adams recounted. And one of the best pieces of advice I, I, I followed in my career to make my career exciting is that figure you're going to change jobs every four or five years. I mean, at Livermore, I had the opportunity to do three or four different things uh, without leaving, you know, at, at the laboratory because it was so broad. There was so much, there was such a broad uh, amount of things to do. It was like a kid in a candy store. Uh, and I spent three or four years, four or five years doing things. Uh, and then I, uh, I graduated to the Washington, D.C. Pentagon area where I spent a few years in the Department of Defense under Bill Clinton and Bill Perry. And uh, uh, I spent a few years at the Department of Energy under John Gordon and then Linton Brooks. And then I spent a few years back in the Pentagon uh, with Ash Carter. Uh, uh, and so every five, six years, I've changed positions. And I think that's one of the ways that keep you, number one, learning, and number two, uh, uh, excited. Once you once you get to the point where you're where you where you think you know things and you think you're you're uh, you got it all down, then it's time to leave because you're not learning anything. I'm sorry, I'm I went too long on this. <laughs> no, no, it's it's good advice uh, for many of the folks out there who are because you know it's been a with much of our sort of the human capital of the labs aging. And some, you know, young physicists and chemists and others considering whether they should come into the labs and whether they should move into the nuclear world. You know, your advice is invaluable to sort of help them think through these decisions. One of the things so I most enjoy in my retired life is mentoring young folks. So if you got any young folks out there that uh, need some mentoring, have them give me a call. Okay, I'll we'll do connect that. them up with the rest of the the quote dons in the community. <laughs> All right, I'll take you up on that. So, you know, one of the things we wanted to talk about today was we live in a very dangerous world. We've had Vladimir Putin make several threats to use nuclear weapons in the last uh, month or so, two months. Uh, and here recently we saw a, you know, and what he called a, a uh, a plebiscite to, to bring the territories of eastern Ukraine into Russia. And he, of course, threatened to use nuclear weapons if Ukraine or NATO tries to bring those those territories back into Ukraine. And so as we think through uh, modernization, which, you know, it, we've sort of seen ups and downs of modernization over the last 10 or 15 years, and you've been in D.C. for the, for the whole show, and as you look at Capitol Hill and its support is, you know, depends on who, which party controls, um, controls Congress, 
in some instances. How do you see the support for modernization playing out both in Congress, uh, in the administration, and then, of course, uh, around D.C.? Adam, I think I want to just refer, first of all, to your point about Russia. And uh, to me, uh, after working 40 years in the national security business with a focus on nuclear weapons, I'm probably as discouraged as I've ever been. Wow. To see what's happening uh, and to see the disruption of the post-Cold War order that we fought so hardly for in, uh, in ending the Cold War. Uh, I'm very concerned about uh, developments. I don't see how the Ukraine situation ends. Um, and we need to be thinking very, very clearly and carefully about how we can best discourage further adventurism by Mr. Putin. One of the reasons we have, I think, a very strong bipartisan consensus in Congress, and not only in Congress, but within Congress and previous, previous and this administration on, this, on the importance of modernization. Uh, Mr. Putin has been a factor in helping build that consensus, but he's not the only factor. I think over the last 10 years or so, we have come to a realization that the American, that the representatives of the American people and their folks that represent them in Congress and in the administration have come to a general agreement about what the role of U.S. nuclear weapons are in this post-Cold War period. It took us a while to get there, but from the Perry Schlesinger Bipartisan Commission leading through the Obama's Nuclear Post Review and the continuation of the modernization program that Mr. Obama set up through uh, Mr. Trump and now through Mr. Biden, all, all three administrations have carried forward, in essence, the modernization program that we need to re recapitalize our nuclear forces. Uh, that's been very important, having that agreed sort of perspective on what is the role of U.S. nuclear weapons. The second part is, uh, and I attribute this very, very critically for modernization is the ability of Senator Reed and Senator Imhoff from Oklahoma, Senator Reed from Rhode Island, who are the chair and ranking member of the Senate Armed Service Committee, have worked very well together in establishing a bipartisan approach on U.S. nuclear policy and U.S. nuclear modernization. That bipartisan approach has actually been even carried forward in the House, where Adam Smith, uh, Representative Smith from Washington, has grudgingly understood that he should that he needs to go along with the plan and he's been getting a lot of support from that from representative Jim Cooper from Tennessee who heads the strategic forces so i think the combination of Reed and Imhoff in the senate and the combination of Adam Smith and uh the uh, uh Jim Cooper uh have been very important for getting moving forward on modernization. The, the threat, uh, the, the concern I have is that Imhoff is now retiring. So there'll be uh, a possibility that he will, well, he will be replaced and we don't know who yet. It could be a representative, uh, Senator Wicker from Mississippi, who is the ranking member lower than uh, Imhoff. Sure. Or it could be Deb Fisher from Nebraska. Senator Fisher from Nebraska, who would be a very good compliment, I believe, to uh, to Senator Reid. Uh, we don't know who's going to replace Jim Jim Cooper, but he is a loss that we need will need to focus on 
in connection with continuing support for modernization in the House. It's been a really good news story over the past 10 years. We have really come together as a country on the importance of nuclear weapons for U.S. future security today and future security and on the uh, role that those weapons have have in our security. And uh, I want to see that continue. Uh, and we need to do our, my job and our job is to do everything we can not to screw up that consensus. Yeah, that's a good point. Thanks for the, for both of those. Because, you know, I hadn't really thought about the fact that we do have sort of our leading advocates of modernization are, are actually retiring, which is, you know, when John Kyle retired, that was a significant loss in, in the Senate um, that I don't know that we've ever fully recovered from that loss because he truly was the great advocate for modernization. Uh, now, as we think about you know, we've talked about bipartisan support and this realization that we have to modernize. As you look at the current modernization, which is underway, and we have all three legs uh, currently under modernization programs that are moving forward, uh, do you see any real challenges to the modernization program, either on the DOD side or on the NNSA side? Well, I think that's a Wonderful question. I want to point out that our modernization program is really a program to replace existing systems that have aged out or are aging out. And basically, our modernization program is to provide those same capabilities uh, to our to the future, to extend the capabilities of our triad and its command and control and the warheads that the, the delivery systems carry. Uh, we waited a long time to, to get a consensus approach. And that time has put us in a position where we are carrying on numerous programs to recapitalize each leg of the triad, all of our delivery systems, the nuclear command and control system that is essential for a functioning triad, and also the warheads that these delivery platforms carry. All of this is going on at once in parallel. We have, a, 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 and all of these programs are very, very difficult and, a, and have to be on a timeline that doesn't allow for much flexibility because if we, if programs get delayed, we will find out that the systems that they are designed to replace will age out and we will uh, some are, suffer some risk to our deterrence. So we have an enormous programmatic challenge, R&D and development and fielding and production to get these systems out the door on time and on schedule and on cost. Uh, so that to me is one of the biggest risks we face, carrying out these extensive simultaneous programs to recapitalize all of our nuclear forces, their command and control, and also the uh, underlying infrastructure, particularly in DOE, NNSA, the underlying infrastructure necessary for the research and development and production of nuclear warheads. And that's where we have suffered mostly uh, in being able to get that infrastructure back in place and doing its job. We've had some recent successes in getting the B-61 bomb out the door relatively on time. We're working on a, a alteration to the uh, W88 warhead for the Trident uh, SLBM, 
and these programs are sort of on track. But our programs to recapitalize, for example, production of plutonium components for nuclear weapons or the ability to, to uh, produce highly enriched uranium components for nuclear weapons, that infrastructure is critical to our future ability to sustain the force. And if we're not successful there, uh, we're in trouble. And so far, we're moving, moving out. We have a, we, we, we get the, these programs for restoring and recapitalizing infrastructure are getting funded. They have support in Congress, but they're very difficult programs and we need, we need them if we're going to be able to complete the modernization of our nuclear triad. Yeah, I think Rose Gottmiller uh, made some comments yesterday uh, in congressional testimony, or it was a report, uh, one of the two, in which she specifically sort of reiterated what, what you said about uh, the challenge to the industrial base uh, for, for building the components, for you know, manufacturing a lot of the, the materials and, and the parts for both delivery systems, for warheads, and that, that we really do have a challenge here and that it's not one that's, that's easily fixed. Do you see sort of a good solution for returning the industrial base to a position where it can make all of the components that we need. I mean, we the stories are legion for Minuteman Three, for example, where the companies that built many of the parts no longer exist, and so therefore we're scavenging for parts. We're trying to find folks that will make the parts. Um, but as we look forward with Sentinel and you know all of the other systems, the, the primes. You know, we have the the big primes. There's only a few left. That are making it, but for the sustainment portion of modernization, that's sort of where we see the, the most challenge for the industrial base. Do you have sort of a grand solution to to solve all of the world's ills in this uh, in this area? Well, I think basically that one of the things you've just so, that is so important is we have to keep the systems we have today going until they can replace. And that's an extremely challenging uh, for modernization. And uh, we have in the Air Force, for example, two program offices, one for sustainment of Minuteman III and one for advancing the GBSD Sentinel. And those two programs have to work very closely together. Um, I think the, the problems that you've pointed out, for example, with Minuteman III and being able to replace parts and all of that, are just the the driving, the drive uh, under under emphasize over not overemphasized, but call attention to the importance of getting the Sentinel out the door on time. Uh, we only have a few more years left, I think, with Minuteman three uh, before we'll start really getting to the point where we're falling off the cliff of performance, and we need to get the Sentinel underway and going. The good news is the program is, is meeting its challenges and is delivering so far. We're in the middle of, uh, of uh, engineering development for the Sentinel ICBM. Uh, we're going to do a flight test in the next year or two, year or so. Uh, so we're moving down the door. And the program, as I understand it, is in pretty good shape. And that's generally the Department of Defense's R&D and industrial base 
is not in bad shape. I mean, we have a system that is being exercised. For example, we have to build a long-range standoff nuclear cruise missile. Uh, but we have programs underway that enable us to nurture the R&D and industrial base for cruise missiles by, because the Department of Defense also buys conventional cruise missiles. We have programs underway to nurture the B-21 Raider, the new heavy bomber that we're developing. That industrial base is being sustained and, and nurtured by other work the Department of Defense does with other aircraft, such as fighter aircraft and other things. So the Department of Defense industrial base is pretty well exercised and is reasonably healthy compared to the Department of Energy's industrial base. There we have a, a situation where we have aging facilities from the Manhattan, from the Manhattan Project years from the 40s, early 50s that have not been replaced. And these Installations are not are 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 in bad shape, physical wise, and they're not as safe as they could be. Uh, and we need to recapitalize that infrastructure, particularly for uranium, highly enriched uranium components, and for plutonium components for nuclear warheads. Other components, such as the non-nuclear components, we've suffered some setbacks there. Uh, in Kansas City, Adam, where you live, we have a plant that fields. The uh, non-nuclear components for nuclear warheads, and we made a decision several years ago to size it at a certain capability and capacity. And given where we are now, we have a much larger required capacity, and we're scrambling in NNSA to be able to add additional floor space at the Kansas City plant. So we're not where we want to be in terms of the Department of Energy's nuclear weapons. R&D and industrial base, but we do have, the good news is we do have programs in place to get us there, and we have a plan in place to get us there. And uh, so that, those are the points I would want to emphasize. This episode of NucleCast is brought to you by the AMLA Deterrence Center, whose mission is to educate Americans about the nuclear enterprise and strategic deterrence. One of the things that you mentioned, you mentioned the Kansas City plant, and I just so happened to have been at the Kansas City plant last week uh, touring their facilities, and we, we asked the very specific, myself and some folks from Stratcom were there, and we asked the very question, you know, what is your ability to mass produce 
some of the systems we were looking at. And there was a limited search capability, but like you said, some of these key non-nuclear components, we just can't mass produce them because they're all, uh, you know, for many of the listeners may not be familiar with sort of the, the intricacy of manufacturing many of the components in a nuclear weapon that they are uh, very, uh, I'm, I'm trying to think of the right word to use here, but they are very meticulously made to a very high standard. And so you have to be uh, very hardly hard radiation hardened is a, is another requirement for these systems. Yeah, and just the quality of the metal, which is used. a challenge. Yeah, right. and it's it's you know the the circuitry. Yeah, every piece of them, it's not just made like something mass mass manufactured. And so this you know this is of course a challenge across as you said the the entire uh, DOE lab system and and the manufacturing system. Uh, so as we look at that, so it, it seems to me as I've, you know, sort of listened to you, uh, that the DOD is sort of in a better position in its uh, building of delivery vehicles than perhaps the DOE labs, the NNSA labs are in terms of uh, their responsibilities. Is, do you see that there's a more of a willingness in Congress to support DOD requirements than than NNSA and DOE requirements is is that part of what the problem is? I think first of all, let me just make your point on Kansas City. Uh, let me footstop you there. I mean, the Kansas City plant was sized for one and a half to two warhead life extension programs a year, and right now we're in the middle of four or five warhead life extension programs. So we we miscalculated what we needed. Um, and part of that is the reason we it took us so long to get uh, a, a, a sustained consensus on modernization and the resources to support it. I think the Department of, I think the Congress has been quite good on providing funds for NNSA and for particularly for its recapitalization. There's uh, Congress has appropriated additional money beyond what the president has even requested for pit production. Mm -hmm. uh, in the last year of Mr. Trump's administration under Lisa Gordon Haggerty at NNSA, uh, there was a 20% bump up in funds for nuclear weapons programs. So the Congress is serious about funding these programs. The question is, can we deliver? Right. And that's the challenge that Jill Ruby has, who is taken over for Lisa and Mr. Biden's administration, Jill has to get these programs delivered. And uh, she sees this as, as I see it, I think she sees this as her highest priority. And these are not just simple facilities to build and, and process like pit production. It's, it's not exactly a simple process. They're one of a kind. <laughs> you don't do this... Uh, one of the things we don't do is ask Lockheed to produce plutonium pits for nuclear weapons. Uh, that is seen as an inherently governmental function. Anything really having to do with nuclear weapons is inherently governmental. And we do these at basically government-owned, contractor-operated facilities. Kansas City is one of those. I would say one thing, though, I want to just push back a little bit on you on sure. the labs. I think the labs are pretty healthy. Mm -hmm. um, 
they have, during the period after the end of the Cold War, a lot of focus. Some would argue a lot of focus was put on sustaining and improving the scientific and technical mm -hmm. capabilities yeah. at the laboratories to design, develop, and field nuclear warheads and also to assess their safety and reliability. That's been a pretty good, that's been a pretty good news story. Um, on the other hand, as a result of, of spending additional funds to improve science, scientific and technical capabilities, there was a shortfall in resources allocated to sustaining production capabilities. And we're trying to redress that now. Now, you know, you've, you've, like you mentioned earlier, you've had a 40 year career in this, you know, in this field. So that means you were around for the last time we tested a nuclear weapon, which, you know, that's been 30 years ago. And so as you look at uh, sort of what's going on in the world and the state of our nuclear enterprise and the state of the stockpile, in the state of the arsenal, do you ever think that there's a, a need for, you know, actual testing out at, at uh, the Nevada test site? Do you see that we'll, we will have, uh, you know, p potentially even as um, for the purposes of signaling to the Russians or the Chinese that we may have, uh, you know, an, an underground test? Uh, in in you know the say the three to five to seven year period, or do you think testing is just done? Well, you point out it was exactly a, a week ago. Friday was the thirtieth anniversary of the last U.S. underground nuclear test in Nevada, and many of us at that time thirty years ago believed that uh, when this moratorium on nuclear testing got extended by President Bush one, and when President Clinton signed the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty, many of us believed that we would not be able to sustain our stockpile for extended period with simply the scientific te technical capabilities, but that we would require nuclear testing. 30 years since, uh, I have been very much impressed by the ability of our scientists and engineers at the national labs to put together a program uh, that the president has asked for to assess the safety and reliability using scientific technical capabilities, not underground nuclear testing. We have an underground facility in Nevada that enables us to do non-nuclear testing with plutonium uh, uh, safely, uh, and we exploit that facility. That facility is being improved to give us better diagnostic capabilities. Some would argue that we know more about how nuclear weapons operate today than we ever did during the time when we were nuclear testing. Uh, so that's been a, a good news story that we've been able to certify the safety and reliability of stockpile for the last 30 years. But there's a caution. I mean, we, can, we, we don't know whether we will be able to sustain this in the future. There's a lot of uncertainties in this business. And one of the things that 
every president since President Clinton has sustained is that we will retain the capability at the Nevada test site to return to nuclear weapons testing if there is a problem with our critical weapon and our nuclear deterrent that requires a test to either understand a problem or to certify a fix. And therefore, we maintain a readiness program at the Nevada test site to be able to provide that capability should any president in the future decide that the U.S. requires a nuclear test for its national security. Okay, well, with that, I will give you the final word. It, it's, you know, we're out of time for the show. And, of course, I want to thank you, John Harvey, for for being here today and for enlightening our listeners. It was a, a good discussion. It's always good to hear, you know, we have on, on Nuclecast, we have folks from DOD, we have folks from academia, and we have folks from NNSA who have that, you know, the technical background with uh, with weapons and with weapons programs. So it's always good to, to get that sort of diverse uh, set of experiences on the show. So with that, I want to thank you for joining us. And of course, we will have you back in the future. I have uh, every confidence that Mr. Xi and Mr. Putin are going to keep nuclear weapons relevant in the years ahead. Thank you, Adam.